Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by director Ben Wheatley. This was a cool talk. Ben jumped on pretty last minute to talk about his new movie, In the Earth. It's his new horror movie. It's also the 10th year anniversary of Kill List. So I had to talk about that fantastic movie. And we spoke about Movie Drome. For those of you who don't remember, Movie Drome was a film series on the BBC where director Alex Cox and later Mark Cousins picked a movie each week. And in pre-internet times, this was an amazing gateway drug where they would pick really cool cult movies every week. So that was a really formative experience in being a movie nerd. Ben is a really cool guy and he works super fast, which is really interesting for you filmmakers out there if you wanna take some notes as to how this maniac manages to make films in eight days to two weeks. It's fucking crazy. Anyway, here is me and Ben Wheatley. So my first question is usually what you grew up watching, but I know, like me, you grew up watching Movie Drome, yep. which is a really important show in British film culture for most of us who watched it. Yeah, I mean, I I I was lucky enough to talk to Alex Cox a few years ago, and I, you know, just had to thank him wholeheartedly for that. You know, and, and it. I think it for me it was like a mixture of movie drone and, um, oh, was it the movie show as well? Wasn't there that was that played around the same time? Is that what it's called? Or cinema? oh, I never caught that. Yeah, that there was another one which was like the the more serious. It was it was dealing with more art films than than genre films, and then it was the. I now I know I completely misnamed this as well, but the Jonathan Ross thing, the incredibly strange picture show. That, what it was, that was good. His book was really cool too. I don't know if you ever bought his book where it had he had a spin-off book and it had like big chapters on Russ Meyer, Argento, yeah. Abel Ferrara. Lynch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. really I mean, good taste. I mean, I think that was the really important one on that for me was the the Raimi one where they showed um Within the Woods and his early kind of um short film, Super 8 films and stuff. And I think that was when you could see that and make that connection and go, oh, right, that's a guy who was as far from the um, Hollywood filmmaking um, system as possible, but with the, with the help of his mates could have made a movie that then made him into a major filmmaker. You could say, well, it's not as impossible as it, as it seems from the outside. you know. And I really liked how extra... Alex would always be with his intros and even he had like interesting backdrops and stuff for each of his films and stuff. He'd really like make a, a scene of it. I remember in Terminator, he was in like some like industrial scrapyard. Yeah. And, that's and the, isn't that the one where he goes on about Terminator 2 being two Arnold Schwarzeneggers? 
So at that point, they hadn't developed it in in the way that it was finally finished. So I was like, I always thought that that was in- interesting. I already talks about that. I don't know where he'd heard that from. Yeah, and the assault on precinct thirteen one was really cool. Where he's like, at the end, he's like doing a lookout, like he's about to get snipered by something. It's kind of goofy, and but even when he did um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he even just said, "This is great, but I'll be straight with you. It's too long." But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite Pretty bold. Ballsy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I think, I think he complains quite a lot about diva as well. Doesn't yes. He? <laughs> um. For the first time, I've and I've been after them for twenty years, but I found both Movie Drone books on eBay for yep. about ten pound each. But the quest is over after <laughs> twenty years of searching and never bothering to get off my ass and send the stamped address envelope and check back in the eighties and nineties. But I think the weird thing, the thing I found out about it, which I didn't realize, was that I always thought he'd chosen the films. And like sort them out specifically, but but really the dark secret of it all was that there oh, were no. films that were there at the BBC under license, and they were trying to find a way of putting them on, and that was what that's how he pitched the show. So he kind of there was a grab bag of all these weird movies, right. but they were all, they were already there in the BBC. They weren't chosen. They yeah you know, they were curated by him and chosen by him from those from that list, but they weren't specifically gone out and got. You know okay. That's some good cuts, though. Some really good deep cuts, considering. Yeah, yeah. It's great stuff. We tried to get him and Mark Cousins to do a double bill on the podcast, but Mark Cousins doesn't, looking back, doesn't like his creation. Oh, well, the, ch- the films that he chose? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I, I think he's evolved to a kind of a different headspace and stuff and less kind of cult yeah. and trash, and he doesn't feel too hot about his choices, but... <laughs> I think it should be celebrated. Yeah, totally. But I was wondering, since Field in England and Happy New Year both broadcast on TV, is is it things like Moviedrome that made you want to broadcast on TV still, considering the whole film landscape has kind of changed so much since then? But I was wondering what appealed to you about the idea of a broadcast it's more about the kind of longevity of the film in a way. It's like, so when you've got like something like Colin Bursted, you're looking at it going, well, where's it going to go? You know, it can go, maybe it'll get a 30 screen release or a hundred screen release in the UK. And then after that, there'll be a, if it's still going, there'll be a Blu-ray release and then, then it will get onto television. So that's, that's its life. Um, and how many at each point in that life it will determine how many more viewers it's going to get. So mm-hmm. chances are that that version of the release it doesn't get seen by that many people. It might be people might really like it, but they won't, they'll never be a big audience for it. But if you go, oh well, let's, let's stick it on TV. The TV audience is ginormous. So you've got like a you know Colin Burstyn was seen by about two million people over that first week, something like that. And you go, well, that that's if that was box office it would be like a smash hit <laughs> it'd be right. huge so so in that respect you kind of go well in a way if you can get it out to that many people it's got more of a chance then to disseminate into culture than it does if if you're doing a, a kind of quite small bespoke kind of release so that's so those are the things that go through your head you're like well you want it to be seen by a lot of people and there's a compromise there to be had sometimes and how was the response to field in england that must have been pretty fun to have a psychedelic film about the 
English Civil War in black and white being broadcast into people's homes. Yeah, it was bonkers. And it was the only, that film, it applies to even more. You know, it's like that That would never was going to be seen by anybody unless we, we did something radical with it. I mean, and that release pattern helped us a lot, you know, to be to be day and date, but also free on TV at the same time was it got out to the maximum amount of audience. And that had come from like thinking about, I think I saw a thing about um, Shane Meadows' Dead Man's Shoes and it had been, Dead Man's Shoes had done all right at the cinema, but it wasn't spectacular. But when it was shown on film four, it had, a, that's when the kind of real audience came to it. And it, and you know, it was seen by, you know, by a factor of a hundred more people. And it was, and I thought, well, why, what if we could get that audience first before, you know, so we didn't have to wait six months for that to happen and, and hit it all at once. And maybe that the, the audience in the TV audience will feed back into the cinema audience. And then there'll be like a loop of people talking about it. You know, it, it didn't, it, it didn't work quite like that in the end, but it certainly, we did get a big audience for a film, which is decidedly and aggressively weird. And I think you said working in TV and all those tight schedules made you really effective in shooting and directing and getting stuff done so quickly, which I'm wondering, is that why you're so fast when you're making your films? Did you just kind of work up those strengths in working like Ideal and things like that, where you have super tight deadlines? Yeah, I mean, Ideal was... Um, sharpened everything up for me. It was the first kind of every, the things I'd done before that were more like sketch shows and comedy sketch shows, and that was that was like comedy drama. So it, it is like making a film, but like on speed. You know, you've got kind of quite a lot of, and also because there's so many characters in it, you're always confronted with a scene with like six people in it. Like every other, every other hour, you've got to deal with that or up to eight people in a room all talking to each other. And it's an apps, you know, it gives me the absolute heebie jeebies because it's like to work out all the sight lines and how people, how to block that stuff is, is absolutely terrifying. And I was like up all night kind of just drawing it out and trying to work it out. And I had these, di these DVDs, which were uh, called um, American blocking. Or Hollywood blocking, it was called, and it was, and it just showed you how to like a shot shots from um, Hollywood classics and how they constructed them, and then I'd watch those, and then I'd go in into Ideal and like try bits of them out, you know, um, because you were churning through so much material all the time, and and have, so that that really really helped, and I like that thing of like you know it's half an hour, you shoot half an hour a week on a TV show usually, and then you've got a week to edit half an hour, so. Once you, if you apply that to to film, then it means you've got a three week shoot with a three week edit, and then it's done. Um, and that's kind of what happened on stuff like Sightseers and um, uh, Kill List. How was it then? On what was the shoot length on Rebecca? Were you still working at your typical super fast pace, or did you slow down? Uh, Rebecca is what was it in the end twelve weeks or something? But it, it, it's a weird one because what it is, it's not really. If you look at those other the faster movies, they're they're designed to be shot fast, so they're all they're often their single location. So Rebecca was still shot quite fast, but just in really amazing locations all over the place. So you what you you and that's what I found interesting about doing 
bigger stuff, or even just the difference between doing Ideal and Down Terrace was on Ideal, on Down Terrace we shot it in eight days, um, but we had as we had as much time with the actors as we would do on three weeks on Ideal because we decided not to um, light it in the same way, and so I so Ideal had a was lit in a kind of three point classic Hollywood style so there'd be backlights and kickers and all that stuff and that stuff takes time you know it's 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 painstaking so and every time you move the camera it takes half an hour to reset it some you know most times um and on down terrace it didn't you know so it was quick um but then you know and so with rebecca you get you have all this extra time but then it all disappears again so you're you know you you have almost less time with the actors than you you might have done on a on a lower budget film do you think you prefer your fast way of shooting or is it all the same? It's not the same, but it is, um, they're different challenges all the time, you know, and that, and they're all enjoyable. So it's, it's the, you know, it's a different thing again when you're shooting an ad, you know, which is 30 seconds that you're shooting in a day. And I remember the first ad I did, I think, oh my God, I've got all the time in the world. How do people stretch it out? look busy for a whole day and then you're like at the end of at the end of the day everyone's running around like mad and you still haven't shot it all and it and it's a nightmare and it, it just it, it, there's just different levels of concern you know you can you can get into so like on a on a low budget film that's shot out in 15 days there's less grip work there's less dollying and less cranes and all those complicated things that take time to get right but then you know you go into um the uh you know, you once you start getting technocranes out and stuff, it all you call them we call them like time thieves. <laughs> what was it? Or the other one was it the um, motion capture machine? Is uh, the cameras are called um, overtime machines? You know, you get them out, you know, you're going to be going over. It's going to cost a fortune. You know. Do you get many young directors asking you for advice of how you shoot so quickly and efficiently? Because I was thinking my friend was just recording his album and I was like, do it quick. You know, like Bruce Springsteen recorded his, his album in five days. And he's like, yeah, it's a fucking E street band. So they can just totally knock it out in that speed. So I was wondering what advice he gives people who want to work quickly, but maybe haven't had the time to develop that kind of muscle like you have in filmmaking. And It's tricky. I think shooting on your phone is good, you know, prepping. I mean, I tend when I started, I never, I didn't really do as much prep as I do now. So I would do shot lists a bit, but I would wing it. And some of it, some of the low budget stuff you end up winging because you can't control the environment anyway. So there's no point being too specific about what you're going to do going in because you're never going to be able to do that. And then that can really throw you. You go oh, on the day, you're like, oh shit, oh, all my plans are out the window and now I've got to make it up. So you might as well just make it up from scratch as you start. But as I've gone on, I've become more neurotic. So I kind of storyboard everything. Um, uh, and I find with that, if you storyboard, and I'm not just action, everything, dialogue, anything going in and out of a door or what the characters are, the cutaways or anything. And so then you get this massive wadge of paper and you can go through it and you can put yourself in a trance and, and see the film. And it's the cheapest way of doing it. It, may, it takes a lot of uh, resource in terms of you you've, your time, but it's definitely worth doing. Um, but then you don't take that on set necessarily. And you kind of, you, but you've already had a go at directing the film once. So you've got a bit more, you're giving yourself a bit more of a chance, you know, and it's something to fall back on when you're when you're shooting it on the on the floor 
In the Earth, you said you were watching a lot of horror movies in lockdown. Yeah, I watched. I actually did. I started off by not watching anything. To be honest, I didn't watch. I just didn't feel like watching anything. And I kind of watched. The first thing I we watched was the uh, was Terror, the um, the uh, thing in Antarctica, TV show, and um, and it was so good. It was really hard to watch anything else after that. But then I started watching towards the end. Before before we shot the film, I was watching a bit of Harryhausen movies like um, Twenty Million Miles from Earth and um, Twenty Thousand Fathoms, The Creature from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and I really I was really enjoying them, and I was going, "God, why don't I?" I used to love those films when I was a kid. I don't know why I didn't watch more of them, you know. And then we watched uh, Phase Five, and then I ended up watching some of the, some Fulci stuff. And that was a weird grab bag of stuff, but I don't know. I just was it's stuff I enjoyed or stuff I hadn't indulged myself in for a while, and it, and I felt like oh yeah, and we watched Quatermass as well, like the, the John Mills Quatermass mm-hmm. movie, and and they all kind of found their way into in the earth in different areas, I think. And you saw the Halloween shooting schedule, is that right? You saw yeah. how quickly that was shot, and you thought that was yeah, a. I, eureka moment for you in some ways yeah i mean i've been thinking about it for a while like the idea that there are blueprints out there for how to how to make films and maybe if you just limit yourself to those if you found a film which is amazing like halloween and you found out how it was made you've not really got any excuses when you find out it's 20 days or whatever it is and like their but their budget was similar to our budget in adjusted for inflation so I was like, well, that, you know, if you can make a masterpiece like that, then that you you don't, you know, you can't feel sorry for yourself and you're not on the back foot. It feels like, you know, I've seen like reviews of people saying, oh, you know, it's 15 days and it's like, you know, really low budget. and da, da, da. But these aren't those, the films that all of horror are built on are that cheap. Mm-hmm. you know and, and we'll shot that quickly or quicker you know <laughs> so it's not really a thing and it's like it, the 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 idea that 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 can be a problem for the filmmaking is i don't i don't i think it it doesn't make any sense to me you know how is it shooting so quickly but keeping in all the covid safety protocols and things like that i'm guessing it was a little bit easier because you were outside yeah, and that wasn't by that wasn't a mistake, you know, by an accident. We did that. We planned that and to do it outside to make our lives easier in terms of COVID and safer, you know. So it, it, we'd looked at if you shot if you're shooting inside at that point, you had to have like these fogging machines that kind of squirt detergent everywhere, and and then every surface has to be cleaned that the actors touch, and it's just a nightmare, you know. And certainly at a low budget, you just can't, you wouldn't be able to facilitate it. You'd have to have a, you'd almost the crew would almost double in size to do that, you know. So, but mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of concern about how hard it was going to be. But in a way, in many ways, COVID helped, you know. So there's stuff like 
we didn't have a central office that we worked from. It was all done by Zoom, and actually Zoom turns out to be a much, you know doing it as video conferences much faster. Um, so that was good. Little things like you don't queue for food anymore. You know, you write down what you're going to eat and put it in that night before, and then it comes to you in the box. And so a lot of the stuff that would slow you down, like trooping off to the to canteens and coming back, is all just eliminated. So that stuff was good. Um, and then you know it's mask wearing and hand washing and like the mask wearing i thought i was going to have a problem with because it was just a bit felt a bit restrictive and a, you you know shortness of breath and stuff but by the second day i didn't even notice it you know and everyone was really they were everyone was super conscientious about it so it was fine and nothing we had no no problems um you've said you used to have nightmares about the woods mm. So how was it filming a survival horror film in the woods for you? Was it cathartic in a way or just really fucking scary? Or? Oh, I, as an adult, I'm not so frightened. I mean, it's hard to be frightened when you're with 25 people. It's very unlikely something's going to happen to you, I'd have thought. And it was quite interesting because when we did the when we did the recce's for the for the location, there's loads of wild animals there and there's loads of deer. And the deer would be asleep underneath, like, low trees and stuff and then would suddenly leap out at you and run off <laughs> and that was like a bit oh but when we shot they were the deer aren't stupid they were miles away you know because we made such a noise and, and and kind of um obviously smelled so much so they were so they they were nowhere near it was a bit of like weird fox screaming going on but you know nothing to be too afraid of i can't get out of my head reese shearsmith seen in the tent is just spectacular where he's he, he comes across almost instantly like a Glastonbury archetype hippie. And then it descends into the surgery and the torture and stuff. That was such a great scene. How was it editing all those different elements together for that scene? Well, that one was like we were, I was editing in the evening. So we'd shoot it and then just have a look at it in the, in, in my hotel room. Usually with like some of the other crew would come in and, you know, we'd have a, chat about it and see look at the work that we've done and it 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 was all quite you know everyone it was always shocking that sequence and it we worked from the first rough assembly everyone was, you know i knew it was going to work but i knew it was going to work when i saw the prosthetics because the process pre, i can't even say it prosthet, prosthetics were so good you know in the room you know you touch them you go oh god it's not a real foot but mm. it is you get that weird dissonance and like oh i can't i know it's not real but it look really it feels real an empathy for a kind of a weird disembodied foot. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, I, and I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed all that stuff, you know, doing you know, proper effects work like that. It was just a great mix of comedy, slapstick, and just dread and tension, really well assembled. Yeah, that's what that's what we were hoping for. And it kind of, I wanted it to feel like, you know, that you were trapped, you, you, you couldn't escape and the time the time was almost like slowing down and you were stuck in it's like a nightmare of you you know your feet stuck in treacle or something and you know it's going to be bad whatever it is and you don't trust the film the film is probably going to show you something horrific or work and i felt that when i when i watched it with an audience i could feel that around me like people were i think a lot of people were not looking couldn't look and i and i think that the kind of the idea of what actually happened is probably much much worse in their heads than the actual what was on screen you know great performance from joel fry he's such a 
he seems like such a sweet, sensitive guy. And to see him thrown in into this environment just made it all the more sad and distressing to watch. Was that in the script or was that just something he brought to it from his personal vibe? Well, uh, it's in the script to a degree, but also, I, you know, I, I know Joel, I'd worked with him before and it was kind of written for him to a degree. You know, I imagined it or, you know, you often do this stuff and you retool the script slightly after you've cast it. Um, but he, there's a thing about him where he's so kind of... Um, He's very real, you know, and you almost feel like he's painfully real. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a kind of a line where it's like, is it just a guy who's been filmed rather than an actor, which is yes. in, in not not in an insulting way, but and, and and to get that realism is very complicated for him to do. I know that, you know, from watching him do it. But it, it, it is there's that, and then the other thing that was really amazing that he did was the measuring of the. Um, metering of the pain across the film which i hadn't really even thought about as a, when i was writing it but how not to peak too early and how to show the different styles of the agony that he, that he has which yeah. was, was quite something you know and it there was a lot there was conversations about that about you know what he was trying to do in moment to moment and what and i, and I thought yeah that was that was one of those moments in filmmaking where you kind of go oh, yeah maybe i've you know not that I ever do really, but the, the underestimation of the craft of acting and just go, shit, there's so much, there's so much going on here. So hard to do. Yeah. It was such a naturalistic performance, which is made it more, even more distressing to watch in the settings of a horror genre where you really didn't know how it's going to play out. And also just uh horror that when you're injured and relying on the kindness of strangers, and you never knew anyone who was coming in as to what the intention was or where it was going to go it was really yeah. high end. Yeah, and I think that thing of it, there was conversation about oh, you know, when Reese turns up as Zach, that oh, of course he's you know he's well they shouldn't go with him because he's obviously probably the one who beat them up in the first place. But you you'd know that in that situation. It's about pragmatism and there's not really any choices, you know, you just can't make it. And I was, I was always thinking about that psychological thing of like, you wouldn't get in a boiling bath, but you'd get in a tepid bath that got warmed up yes. as it slowly gets hotter and hotter. You wouldn't get out, you know, and I think that's what that is. It's like, they really shouldn't go with him. They shouldn't do any of the things that they do, but they kind of, what else are they going to do? You know? What kind of soundtracks were you listening to or speaking to Clint about for the sound design and for the score? Um, I don't know if I played him anything particularly or, we, or that we looked at anything else. It was always more of a kind of a... Um, uh, we talked about... Um, because the, the the music had been written so much into the script, it, mm -hmm. it wasn't like, oh, it sounds like so-and-so or it's got this vibe from this movie. It's more like, what is the sound that Wendell's using to communicate with the plants? What does what will that be like? There was that side of it. There was also, oh, you know, going back to the John Carpenter stuff, it's like there's a reason why a lot of those movies have synth soundtracks because it's a budgetary thing as much as anything. It's the first time I'd worked with Clint where he hadn't, where 
usually what happens is he'll score it and then do demos and then the demos will be then um, arranged and then recorded by um, an orchestra or something like that. This this score is from Clint's fingers to digital to the to the movie. You know, it's like it's come out of his studio unfettered by that. There's been a little bit of work done on it, but it's not it's not the same transformation as it usually happens. And I think that was really interesting. You know that. And a lot of it, there was like, he'd, he'd deliver like kind of massive fat tracks, like 20 minute tracks of, of, of stuff. And we'd listen to those and go, oh yeah, this bit's really brilliant, this bit's good. And then something else again would turn up that's completely different. And then eventually what happens is like we had a, just like two days before we shot the film, a whole album's worth of music turned up. Um, and as I edited the film while we were shooting it, we were putting Clint's music onto it. And, and experiencing it really, really loud in the room, in the hotel room, just going, oh my God, it's amazing. Um, that stuff then went through another load of noodling changes and bits and bobs, but it was pretty fully formed, you know. Yesterday, just to do my homework, I was rewatching Kill List, which is, I think it's 10 years old this year. Yeah, it might be 11, yeah. And I was just lo looking back, it was such a great, unique, singular vision that seems so confident how is it when you're an early filmmaker holding your you, you mentioned about holding your nerve and staying true to your vision but i was wondering in the early days of your career how how was the script received or how was it holding on to the all the things that make the film great like what's unsaid and the way things slowly reveal as they reveal themselves to be contract killers and how casually they pull out the weapons and then the surreal elements come in like the blood oath and stuff yeah, I mean, obviously you make this stuff and you're kind of naive because you've never made anything before. So you don't know what you can do and what you can't do in terms of how you interact with other people when you make stuff. So on that film, I remember we did, we rehearsed like the first 15 minutes because we had that house to, to, to film in and I didn't like it. And I was like, I wrote, Amy wasn't there. She was at home, I think. And I phoned her and said, ah, it's not really working. So she went, all right, okay, I'll rewrite it. So she rewrote that whole opening 20 minutes, like on the fly on the Friday, probably or something like really? that. Yeah, yeah. And then and then we shot it. And then we sent, you know, but then obviously the, the film four would be getting the rushes back. And they look in the rushes going, this isn't the script. What are you doing? And like, we were like, oh, no, we didn't like it. So we changed it. And and now, now looking back on that, I think it's just unbelievable. That's ballsy, yeah. Yeah, well, it wasn't. It wasn't ballsy. It was just stupid. I just didn't know. <laughs> you know, didn't know you had. You can do that. So, so that uh, there's stuff like that that happens all the way through it, or just. And but everyone wasn't that. You know, there wasn't like a massive confidence in it. You know, we. It, I remember and the other thing was like we made it, and then I don't know how we managed to do this, but we just no one ever because I edited it in my house that no one came to the edit or was allowed to come because it was in Brighton, it was too far to go. So they didn't really ever see it. And then we had this idea that you'd only deliver it once it was finished, not like a rough cut. You just go, and it's done, da-da, like that. So we did this screening and everyone was appalled. <laughs> and they're like, whoa. And we're like, yeah, that's it, it's done. Hey. And so so there was a lot of conversation around that at that time. But, but it... <laughs> And, and that kind of went on for a few movies where we were like that. But then by the time you get to, you know, things change, you know, and you can't, if you're making low budget movies, you can work like that to a degree. But as the budgets creep up, it becomes harder to, to pull that off. 
were people on board with the uh, tone of the film and the all, all the elements you're juggling like the occult stuff the criminal stuff and then the kind of the gritty family yeah. drama of it there's a lot yeah, of weird elements were, going on yeah they didn't they didn't mind i think but well, i think we, we get like some weird notes occasionally there someone asks for can i we, we want to see a map of the tunnels at the end right and i'm like what are you talking about there's no map for the tunnels so they go oh we're not sure it makes sense which how they go down those tunnels and I'm like, if you're worried about that by that point in the movie, you're, it's kind of over for you. But the the um, yeah, I think there wasn't. I don't. I think what it was was that, that it was. I mean, I watched it recently as well, and I and I find the tone of it like the one of the things that makes it different. I think is that it's unrelentingly mean, in a way that most films aren't. You know, it is so mean. They're all mean. Everyone's mean in it. <laughs> they do mean stuff to each other. Um, the films mean on the audience. It's a bit punishing to the audience, you know. And, that, and I think that's the, an, an attitude that it has. That I don't really, you know, not to be the biggest fan of my own film, but I don't, I don't see it in other stuff as much. You know, everything's a bit more. I know, reasonable. You know. Yeah, this definitely has the most nihilistic tone, <laughs> which is a compliment, I think. <laughs> um, I got two qu- more quick questions. Um, you're working on the Meg too. Yeah. What drew you, drew you to a big budget sequel? Um, I really like the Meg, so that was the main thing. And then when the script came to me, I thought, oh, that'd be brilliant to do that. And I wanted to do a big studio thing, and I was moving in that direction. But it doesn't mean that I'm not doing other low budget stuff at the same time. So I don't I don't see it as a kind of and I've said this for years. It's not like a linear progression it's not about that it's more about taking your pleasures and finding stuff to do that you're excited about and and I think I mean I did some TV a couple of years ago which was in in LA and got to shoot at Paramount and it just I couldn't believe it you know I shoot I shot stuff on the stages where they shot Vertigo wow and, and I'm just like standing there going <laughs> this is unbelievable it's so brilliant and everyone's like well why are you you know because they work there like oh what's up with him you know and, and just driving around like a studio in a in a golf buggy, and just with a big grin on my face, and it's not really uncool. I went there and then I did loads of um, studio tours as well, and everyone's going, "Why are you doing that? Why would you bother?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Cause it's amazing. Come on, I did the did the Warner's one and stuff. It was brilliant. I went did the Warner's one, and then I was I think I was watching the Swarm as well. So I I actually the the set of the Swarm is in the Warner's. Oh, right. With you. Yeah. 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 It's great. And you said something really interesting that I wanted you to expand on when you're talking about what you consider a horror film. And you said, I can see the war film come and see as a horror film. And also I can see certain Ken Loach films as a horror film. Yeah. What Ken Loach films do you cite as being fitting into the horror movie idea in your... Oh, Lady Bird, Lady Bird's the one that I think that's haunting yeah that one it, i can't it, yeah I, don't, I haven't had an experience like that with <laughs> with any horror film i don't think like you know um a traditional horror film that it was the yeah i just found it really oppressive and and, and it was like the guy i've watched it on channel four and it was this like when the ad breaks came i was just going oh god oh god <laughs> thank god oh, just let me 
sell me some beans. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then it would start up again. You go, oh, Christ, you know. And I think that, yeah, that was that was it to me. I think it was. I think that's from that kind of list I did for film four, wasn't it? And there was, I think, Come and See was on that list, but The Thing was on it as well, and some other bits and bobs. Oh, um, Ghost of the Civil Dead was one of them as well. I think it's when he's getting taken away by the, is it like the immigration police or something when they're in the hospital? Yeah, it's when they take it, the... when she's burnt, they've the burns yes. and they're, they're pulling back the bandages and they've they've all fused with the skin. It's like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I have that on the box set with Raining Stones and Riff Raff, yeah. which are my favourites. But that one, I'm just leaving in the pla- <laughs> in the plastic. <laughs> yeah, I won't be going back to that anytime too soon. Yeah. <laughs> You're producing Neil Maskell's new movie. Yeah. Can you say anything about that? I'm trying to imagine what type of film he'd make. I'm an exec on it, so I'm not, you know, that which is a very much more minor version of a producer, you know. But it's, it, it, yeah, I've seen it. It's great, you know. And I think it's, I, I think whatever you think you're getting from him, it's not going to be that. It's something else, which is what's so great about Neil. He's kind of interested in all sorts of stuff. So it's... um yeah, it's pretty bold, the film. Okay, I'm excited. I've no idea to what, what to expect from him. Yeah, and I don't. I think you should go with a massive open mind to it, yeah. Okay, we're good. Thank you so much for taking the time. Cheers, man. Thank you. There you go. Ben Wheatley. What a cool guy. Did you notice how many questions I had to sneak in at the end there? Just couldn't let it go. Needed to know about Ken Loach as a horror movie director. Needed to know about Neil Maskell. That guy I find so terrifying and weirdly alluring. And the Meg too. I'm excited. I think he's going to make a really fun, ridiculous, big budget franchise movie with hopefully lots of gore and crazy deaths okay that's it deeper into movies podcast this is really fun thank you for listening thank you for saying nice things about my podcast shout to my engineer ewan henselwood and telephone tel aviv who makes all my beautiful music thanks again Thank mm-hmm. you.